Again, to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. We're going to start with verse 30, the very end of Acts 22. And here's what the Bible says. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the tribune of Rome. Last time we talked about Paul, he was in Roman captivity with two chains on both sides, chained to two different soldiers. He couldn't get a word in. Even when he gave his speech on the steps, as soon as he said the word Gentiles, everybody wanted to kill him. So the tribune says, let's bring him to another room. Let's bring him somewhere away from all the people. And we'll summon some people to give an answer as to what all this chaos is about. They're going to ask that the Sanhedrin, that is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, would come and testify against Paul. As I'm sure you already have seen these last few chapters, these were not friends of Paul. So Paul is standing before a Roman tribune and the Sanhedrin about to give an answer again for why he is in this position that he is in. That covers all of Acts chapter 23, and that's what we'll consider today. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray as we open up this ancient and inspired text that it would speak to our hearts, that, Lord, it would show us the way. And may it, most of all, remind us of who you are, that we might trust you, because you, O Lord, are our vindicator. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know this already, as is the case with many things in the Christian life that we already know in our heads, but we have to constantly remind ourselves in our hearts. God is faithful. We say, great is thy faithfulness. There's no shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant in His love and justice and grace and mercy. He is dependable. God is faithful. And this faithful God has committed Himself to His people. Think about that. The one who could never lie. The one who was never late. The one who never double books himself. The one who could always hear your prayers. The one who is consistent and dependable and eternal. This God has covenanted himself with you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in his covenant, his promise. You are under his good graces. You are safe in the palm of his hand. And no one can pluck you out. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do we not need to remind ourselves of this, though, each and every day? When you go through difficult times, do you believe this? When it seems as though you might be on trial, as Paul is here, do you believe this? Have you ever wondered, is God for me or what? I know what Scripture says, God has my back, as it were. God stood beside me. God is for me. But, God, why have you forsaken me? Ever thought that? You're in good company if you have. 
Even the psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried this from the cross as a fulfillment of that. And it makes sense because in this life, let's face it, even our closest friends and family are not nearly as dependable as the Lord. We live in a world of non-dependable, unfaithful people. I hope that your experience has been that your Christian brothers and sisters have been the most faithful, the most dependable to you, but even we in the church will fail one another. We will forget to call. We will not be there for you in your darkest hour. And so I think it's common sense as to why insurance companies in America try to bank on the lack of dependability by selling you their insurance and telling you that they are very dependable. I mean, think about, think about the, the slogan for State Farm, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is what? There. This is our big selling point to you. We're going to be there. How revolutionary is there? Buy our insurance because we'll be there. But it sells. Why? Because we've all had experiences where people just weren't there. They weren't there for us, right? Allstate, you're in good hands. And of course, everyone's favorite jingle nationwide is what? On your side. In life, we are clamoring for people to be there for us, on our side. And so, it makes sense for those who are in marketing to say, look, our company is going to be there for you. We're going to be consistent. We're going to be by your side. We're going to help you in your time of need. Well, today I want to remind you that much better than any insurance policy is God's commitment to his people. I don't mean to pick on insurance, of course, knowing full well we have people here who sell insurance. And we we do need that. But we know that it's not as easy as the commercials sometimes make it. You've got to deal with pre-existing conditions. You've got to deal with maybe a different interpretation of what happened, whether it's a medical or a car accident. And maybe you don't get the amount that you think you should get after paying month by month all this money. And we know it's just not as simple as sometimes it's made to be. But when God says, I am on your side, there are no strings attached. God is with his people. He's committed himself to his people. And today's passage is one reminder that even in Paul's life, when it seemed like everyone was against him, the Lord stood by him. And I pray that as we look at this chapter, you would be reminded as you walk away from here, that if you're in Christ, that is you have repented of your sin, and you are trusting in Jesus alone as your Savior, that the Lord will stand by you as well. Acts chapter 22 Verse 30 ends with Paul before the council. The context here is that the Roman leaders want answers. Why is Paul stirring up so much controversy in Jerusalem? So they take him away from the crowd and they sit him down with the religious authorities. The Sanhedrin and the chief priests. This Roman tribune had to solve at least two problems. One, he needs to tell the prisoner... Paul, who is a Roman citizen, needs to tell him exactly what he's being charged with. Remember, Paul used his Roman citizenship to say, you you can't just just beat me without any sort of charge. I'm not not condemned. 
So what is it? And secondly, this tribune would need some sort of official charge to report to those above him. That's why he's here. That's why he's summoned the the chief priests and the elders of Jerusalem. And that's why Paul is going to make another defense of himself before his accusers. In this chapter now, 23, and you see in your outline, the Lord is the main character. The Lord protects Paul. The Lord stands by Paul. The Lord uncovers the plot to kill Paul. And the Lord brings Paul to Herod's palace. Beginning with point one, the Lord protects Paul from the Sanhedrin via Roman troops. Just that point alone shows you that God can use any means to deliver his people. He is going to deliver his his adopted child, Paul, from the hands of the Sanhedrin by using the Romans. God can do anything he wants. Chapter 23, let's read verses 1 to 10. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent... The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. That's an interesting story. There are a lot of elements to this. You have the Sanhedrin, that's 70 teachers of Jewish law. We have the high priest, Ananias, presiding over this. And the tribune, the Roman tribune, wants answers from them. And they're willing to give answers. Remember, the last thing that they were crying before Paul went to this place was, away with him, away with him. And so when Paul begins by saying, well, I lived my life in a good conscience, something was amiss in Ananias' heart. History tells us, according to Josephus, Ananias was a very quick-tempered man. So for whatever reason, he did not like Paul beginning with, I have a good conscience before God. And so he orders his people to strike Paul. Now, Paul responds with anger. He calls him a whitewashed wall. Probably something many of us would be tempted to do. Remember, throughout this whole series, I've been trying to tie together Paul and Christ. Paul wants to know the fellowship of Christ's power and the fellowship of his sufferings. But Paul doesn't always get it right. In this context, even though what Paul says is true, 
Jesus himself called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, Paul was responding out of anger. When Jesus was reviled, the Apostle Peter tells us he did not revile back. So even though Paul's life is a parallel of Jesus' life, Paul doesn't always get it right. So when Paul refers to this man, Ananias, as a whitewashed wall, uh, you can understand why he's upset. He was just struck for no reason. And it may be true what he said, but it comes from an angry heart. And that's why Paul corrects himself in verse 5, saying, I'm sorry, I did not know he was the high priest. And he even quotes uh, a quote that says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler or your people. So he basically apologizes for his outburst. Again, understandable outburst, yes, but he took ownership, even in his anger for his sin. I do find it interesting, though, in verse 3, when Paul says to Ananias, God is going to strike you. He doesn't say, I'm going to hit you back. He says, God is going to strike you. And many commentators are right, I think, to point out that this is a prophecy. And it does eventually happen. Later on, tradition tells us that Ananias was killed during the Jewish revolt and eventually met his own demise. From his own people, no less. So Paul was giving maybe an unintentional prophecy as to what would happen to Ananias. That happened in 66 AD. Ananias had to flee for his life because of his known sympathies with Rome. And the Jewish guerrillas found him hiding in an aqueduct at Herod's palace. And they killed him. So after Paul apologizes for his response, he then perceives something. He realizes that the Sanhedrin is made up of some Pharisees and some Sadducees. And Paul's very wise here. As Jesus told his disciples, right? Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And Paul plays on the conflict between these two groups of Jewish leaders by saying that I'm here because of the hope of the resurrection. Well, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels, though they don't at least believe an angel appeared to Paul. And so now the, the enemies of Paul are no longer united. And as Jesus himself said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So now you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees going at one another. And it seems like the Pharisees' hatred for the Sadducees' denial of angels and resurrections and eternal life was worse than their hatred for Paul, that they even say in the midst of this trial, we find nothing wrong with Paul. You know what? Maybe an angel actually did appear to Paul. And of course, the Sadducees wouldn't agree with that. And so because these two warring groups seemed at odds with one another, and these two warring groups seemed like they were going to spill over into even more chaos, and because the Roman tribune who's standing by, all he wants is order. I almost feel sorry for him. This is like the third time he's trying to get to the bottom of what is going on. Why is everyone in the temple so mad? Why is everyone outside of the temple so mad? Why is everybody inside the barracks so mad? And he can't get an answer And so he orders that Paul would be taken away. And that's what happens here at the end of verse 10. It says the dissension was so violent that he was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. So he commands the soldiers to take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. Do you see how the Lord protects Paul? Maybe not the way you would have assumed the Lord would protect Paul. 
But he protects Paul through these means. Right? God ordains the ends and he ordains the means. He is totally sovereign over all things. And so Paul's accusers have nothing else they could do. Paul is gone. The Lord is the vindicator of his people. I thought it was interesting that today's psalm, Psalm 135, literally says in verse 14, the Lord will vindicate his people. He will show the world the innocence of his own people. Vindicate means to be made right, to be shown not to be in the wrong. And as Paul stands before his accusers, probably not thinking, how am I going to get out of this situation? All these men are against me. The Lord made a way and protected Paul. So now we move on. Paul is being brought away from this smaller crowd into the barracks. And we come to verse 11. What an encouraging verse in this chapter. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord stood by Paul. Right? He's faithful. He is there. You're in good hands with the Lord. This also teaches us something we have to understand, brothers and sisters. When we talk about God preserving His people, we don't necessarily mean that God is going to take you out of situations. What we mean is that He will be with you in the situation. This reminds me of the story in Daniel chapter 3. You know it pretty well, I think. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, friends of Daniel, in Babylonian captivity, told that they have to bow down to a golden image. In doing so, they would have violated the Ten Commandments. They would have been committing idolatry. And so even though they, they wanted to be respectful, it is better to obey God than man. And so Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, decided we're not going to bow down to that statue. Well, the penalty for that was being thrown into a fiery furnace. A furnace that was so hot that it killed the people who threw others into the furnace. And if you know the story, they go into the furnace because they would not disobey their God. They're thrown into that furnace. They weren't kept from the furnace. They were in the furnace. But the miracle of the story is that there was a fourth person there with them. And even Nebuchadnezzar says, it looks like the Son of God. Jesus is there with us in the midst of the fire. When the Bible says in Psalm 23, as you've probably heard in many a funeral, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you are with me. Because Jesus did walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he really is there with you. So what is, it, what is that thing right now? You may not be able to relate to Paul, you know, going before a Sanhedrin trying to answer for your life. But maybe there's something at work, something at home, something in your family where the pressure is on and you think, I cannot bear this. I can't stand here and say to you, God's going to pull you out of that situation. But I could tell you on the authority of God's word that he is with you. He is holding your hand. He holds your life in the palm of his hands. As Jesus said, no one can pluck you out. You know, I don't know how often Paul may have thought, am I doing the right thing? 
You remember, chapters ago, he'd been warned, right? Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit was leading him, but all of his friends were saying, don't do it. The only thing that could await you in Jerusalem is persecutions and suffering. Well, we're now three or four messages after that, and that's been pretty true, right? Every message that I've preached through this sub-series has been persecution and suffering, persecution and suffering and imprisonment. And there may have been times in Paul's life where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what makes verse 11 so sweet. The Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. In Acts chapter 18, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. There is no greater promise that can be given to us as fallen creatures than the fact that the Lord is with us. I think that's what provoked the writer of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, to say this, Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. God's faithfulness to us is not always deliverance from the trials, but his presence in the trial. The peace of God, you probably have heard this, the peace of God is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of God. Great peace have they whose minds are stayed upon you. In this sin-cursed world, you will have trouble. Jesus promised trouble, but he will hold you in the midst of the trouble. There is no greater guarantee than that. The Lord stood by Paul. Well, the story continues now. Verses 12 to 22. The Lord will now uncover a plot to kill Paul. And just as the Lord uses unusual means, like earlier he used the means of the Roman soldiers and the, and the dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, now he's going to use the means of this nephew of Paul that we know very little about. Look with me in verse 12 to 22. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. You see the deception in that plan? Now look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you, to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, 
who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. It's clear, once again, that Paul's accusers were seething with ungodly anger. The bitterness they had against Paul had grown to the point where they were willing to deprive themselves of food and drink in order to achieve this one goal, the goal being to kill Paul. And they were going to do it deceptively. Forty men lying in ambush, pretending to come down, we want to ask you some more questions, and then kill him. And they weren't to break that oath until they accomplished this goal. The Bible tells us that men love darkness rather than light. And they hate the light because the light reveals their lawless deeds. Jesus promised that there's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. And even though there may have seemed like no way for Paul to ever know this or the tribune to ever know this, God made a way for this plot to be revealed. And he chooses the means of this nephew, Paul's sister's son. We don't know much about this. We know that Paul was a Pharisee. He was Jewish. We also know that Paul's a Roman citizen. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilled. It's a very interesting study. There might be some relationship between Paul and the court of Herod. Don't know what that is, but... Somehow his nephew has access to the barracks and access to the tribune. Paul comes from some sort of privileged family. Again, we don't know how that happened, but in the Lord's providence, it is used for his glory here. So the nephew spoils the plot. There's a lot of speculation about how that happened, but there is something here that I think is a foreshadow of our Lord Jesus. The nephew becomes a mediator. When it seems like The enemy wants nothing else but to, as Jesus said, kill and steal and destroy. We need a go-between. Someone to intercede for us. Someone to stand by us. And that, of course, is the Lord. And in this sense, Paul is helpless, right? Paul can't do anything about his chains. He is chained to two Roman soldiers. If the tribune had followed the advice of the Jewish council... He would have brought Paul before them, and Paul would have been dead the next day. If it wasn't for this mediator, if it wasn't for this person, this underdog, to go in between and foil the plan, Paul would be dead. But because of the mediation of this nephew, under the providence of God, Paul lives to see another day. Now, this story ends with something even more unique. The Lord then brings Paul out of that dangerous situation to Herod's palace via a Roman cavalry. Look what it says in verse 23. So this is the tribune now. The tribune heard of the plot. He doesn't want Paul dead. So he calls two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
patting himself on the back a little bit here. Verse 28. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is pretty interesting. So Paul's going to have another trial. It's like going from a lower court to a higher court. This time his court is going to be in Herod's palace under the governor Felix. As one commentator says, the Lord doesn't promise freedom or a pleasant journey, only that he's going to Rome to testify. But the journey by which um, Paul would make it to Rome is a pretty interesting one. Kind of reminds me of um, my, my grandfather, who was a World War II veteran. And Grandpa used to brag about how he took a cruise one day to France. He took a cruise to France when he was um, in his early 20s, and the government uh, enlisted him against his will and put him on a ship and brought him to France to fight the war. But my Grandpa considers that a cruise. Well, likewise, you know, Paul didn't make a phone call here. He's not calling an Uber. And yet somehow, in the Lord's providence, he gets delivered from his enemies with a cavalry of 200 soldiers and 70 horses. And he gets to spend the night not in the prison, but in Herod's palace. Paul's being treated like a king. He's being treated like an untouchable. He's being guarded like, like, a, like a witness, like he's in the witness protection program. All the resources of Rome being used to protect this one man from sure death. Isn't God amazing? God has not guaranteed an easy voyage, but he has promised a safe harbor. And Paul has not had an easy voyage. But here he gets a little bit of a luxurious treatment on his way out of Jerusalem as he heads toward Rome. Who would have thought that the same Romans that put Jesus on a cross would be the ones to preserve Paul's life? Well, Paul, you might remember, chapters ago... When all his friends were telling him not to, he said, I must go to Jerusalem. And then he said, I must go to Rome. So Paul ultimately does not die in Jerusalem like his Savior. He's on his way to Rome, but he makes a stop here in Caesarea to once again testify about his newfound belief that he is preaching and causing a stir. Warren Wearsby says, not only was Paul protected by an escort fit for a king, but he was put not in the common prison, but in the palace built by Herod the Great, where the governor had his official headquarters. You see, in the eyes of the Jews, Paul was guilty as charged. He was a blasphemer. He was teaching people to go against the law of Moses, and he needed to die. But in the eyes of the Romans who were no more friends of God than the, than the unconverted Jews. In the eyes of the Romans, Paul was innocent until proven guilty. The Lord vindicated Paul from his enemies. And we leave Paul here right before his next trial on his way to Rome, where he will once again defend himself from his enemies. 
kind of reminds me of how in the Psalms it says, you spread a table for me in the presence of my enemies. When we come to the Lord's Supper today, it's the Lord's table spread before us, but in the presence of enemies. And I understand we're in a church right now. We're all friends, right? But we live in a world filled with enemies of the cross of Christ. And it isn't that God's people retreat away from them. But we stand our ground. The beauty is we don't stand alone. God is with His people. And if there's anything about all these events in Paul's life to remind us of the God that we serve is that His commitment to His people is unbreakable. Yes, there might be times where it seems like He's not there. Why why does God allow Paul to be dragged out of the temple and beaten? We don't know. We know that that suffering is part of the suffering of Christ that Paul longed to endure. But over and again, God reminds Paul that he's with him. And I hope, brothers and sisters, this will also remind you that God is with you. Let me wrap that up with just a few points of application. Take heart, my brethren. The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. It says that in Hebrews. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Insurance policies might be written in ink or maybe a PDF file emailed back to the agent. But God's covenant with you is written in the blood of his son. He will not go back on his covenant. If there's anything in the Old Testament that we learn is that no matter how rebellious Israel was... God preserved them, and He always reminded them, it wasn't because you were anything great, but for the sake of my name and the covenant I made with your fathers, I preserved you. And God preserves Paul, because Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And God preserves you and me, because faithful is He who began a good work in you to complete it. He will not let you go. The Lord, we learn from this passage, is our protector, our deliverer, and our vindicator. He is our protector. As the Lord protected Paul, so he will protect us. This is why we sing songs like, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. This is why we say, He is the shelter in the time of the storm. Psalm 91 verse 14 says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Protection doesn't always mean that we won't suffer physical pain. And you know that. We will. It doesn't mean we'll be protected from name calling and our hearts hurting because of the way people treat us. But God will always protect us from the enemy. He will always protect us from destruction. The enemy will never win. The Lord is the one who has the victory. And that's why in the Old Testament, God rebukes his people for seeking protection from Egypt or trusting in horses and chariots. Listen, that's not to say that we as as human beings don't, don't use common sense measures, right? We wash our hands after we use the facilities, we wear our seatbelts, we wear a helmet, we lock our doors. We see Paul uses his citizenship. Of course, we're not going to live reckless lives. But ultimately, God wants our full trust. He is our protector. And I wonder, brother or sister, is there something in your life for which you're not trusting the Lord to protect you? 
May your eyes of faith be driven back to the one who holds all things together. He is our protector. Secondly, he's our deliverer. As the Lord delivered Paul, so he will deliver us. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Again, by deliverance, he will choose what he will deliver us from, right? Uh, It doesn't mean that he will not deliver us or will deliver us from all earthly pains, but one day he will. I can't stand here and guarantee that you will not be diagnosed with a disease that will ultimately take your life. If you have a disease that is threatening, I can't guarantee that the Lord will heal you. We'll pray for healing. We'll trust Him for healing. We don't know God's will in these matters. But I can tell you, on the authority of God's Word, that no one who trusts Christ will ever suffer condemnation, but will be delivered from hell forever. If you trust in the Lord Jesus... Your eternity is secure. Your name is written in heaven. You are seated in heavenly places. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. The Bible even says to Mary, call him Jesus, which means Yeshua, God saves, for he shall deliver his people from their sins. You may suffer physical wrath. You may suffer the wrath of your neighbor, of your friend, of your family in this life but you will be delivered from the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it for you. He is our deliverer. He is our protector. He's our deliverer. And finally, he is our vindicator. He's our vindicator. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 3, as we bring the plane in for a landing here. Romans chapter 3. Verse 23, you know this verse, I'm sure. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then it goes on to say, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and the justifier. To justify is another word for vindicate. To go before the judge with a record that looks as guilty as can be, but then be acquitted of all charges vindicated, justified. God is not only the one who does the justifying, He is the just judge. Now, we wouldn't want a judge to go light on a criminal that, this, that deserves punishment. We would think that's an unjust judge. Punishment must be paid. The only way for God to be just and the justifier is, as it says in verse 25 of Romans 3, to pour out His justice on His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful doctrine and we may bear this out in our Wednesday class about the gospel, that every Christian should know. And it's called imputation. To impute is to put something into someone's account. 
And we're familiar with this today because we have Venmo and Cash App, and we could, we could impute from our bank account to someone else's account. So someone who has $0 in his account and someone else has $50, we can take the 50 and put it in someone else's account and impute it to them. Now they have $50. You and I stand before God as guilty. Just as Paul stood on trial and his accusers pointed their fingers at him, trying to get the Romans to kill him. And since they wouldn't do it, they would plan to do it. Satan accuses you. Who is your vindicator? Who will justify you? And you know what's problematic is in in Paul's situation, though Paul is a sinner by nature, Paul didn't do anything wrong. He was falsely accused. But the, the, the thing with you and me is that standing before God, we're not falsely accused. We are guilty. We are sinners. And our sins do deserve punishment. But God vindicates his people because he poured out that punishment on somebody else. He imputed our punishment to the account of Jesus Christ so that Jesus would bear the wrath and the penalty and the condemnation that belonged to us. And then he imputes Jesus' righteousness to our account. What they call from old times the great exchange. So that God can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God is your vindicator, brothers and sisters. And God is the one who has the final word. Your sins will accuse you. Satan will accuse you. Perhaps others will accuse you. But remember Psalm 135, 14, what we heard in the reading this morning. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Whereas Paul was falsely accused, we do sin and we must repent of those sins. When we repent, the Bible promises the Lord will give us eternal life and grace. You know, one of the epistles... Paul says, thanks be to God who brings us in triumphal procession. And I wonder if he had his journey in mind when he wrote that. It might not have been much of a triumph, but Paul, surrounded by soldiers and hundreds of Roman and horses and weapons protected on his way to the palace, is just a foretaste of how no matter what we go through in this life, the Lord will bring you and me in triumphal procession into His presence one day. Do you deserve that? No. But God gives it to us by grace. Because the Lord sticks by His people. The Lord vindicates His people. The Lord protects His people. The Lord is with His people. He is faithful. His love is unbreakable. And it will never let you go.